And uh, you think that we would be retiring at 67 years of age, but uh, we're continuing a life of uh, joyful expectation about how the Lord can use you in building his kingdom. We are going out to start the, a, a new church in Reno, Nevada. There's a small group of people out there who want to identify with the PCA. And uh, so we told them we would uh, give them a helping hand to do that. If you are moving to Reno, we'd love to have you join us. If you know people, I hear a lot of people from California are moving to Reno. <laughs> uh, if you know anyone in Reno that uh, you could uh, send their name and information to, we'd be thrilled to have it and make those connections. Well, I was delighted to find out this month is Missions Month because we have been missionaries all our lives in one way or the other, and I'm happy to open the Word of God to you this morning, and we're going to be looking at God's Word a bit differently. Oftentimes, uh, what you do is you look very deeply at a few verses. Well, this morning, we look very widely at a, a wide section of Scripture, so if you have your Bibles open, you might want to turn them to Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and we'll be going all the way through chapter 9, through the end of chapter 8. So I hope you had a good breakfast, <laughs> and um, let's, um, I'll be preaching from the paragraph headings in those sections of your Bible, so you might want to look at those. In, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus has spent the night on the mountain in prayer, and when he comes down from the mountain, he, out of the number of disciples that are following him, he chooses from those disciples 12 apostles. Now, this is the second stage of their ministries because, as you know, a disciple is a learner and an apostle is one who is sent out to teach. And so this is a new stage of their ministry. They're not ready for this uh, assignment yet. They're in training. And Jesus preaches for them in Luke chapter 6 their inaugural message, what they'll need to know if they're going to be those who share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Now, the good thing about reading the Bible is we're just not passive readers. We're active participants. We are in the story. Did you know that? Now, so put yourself in the story, but don't always put yourself in the story and the good people because that's not usually where I find myself. <laughs> I find myself in almost everybody in the story, but we get to be part of that apostolic band who's been commissioned by Christ to continue his ministry in the word. Uh, you know that some of our confessions say the church is one apostolic and holy. The church is apostolic, first of all, because it's committed to the teachings of Jesus Christ that were given to his apostles and continue to us today, so we're committed to that. But in order to be an apostolic church, we must also be committed to the mission of the apostles, and that is to take this message to the ends of the earth. That's how you get to be, call yourself an apostolic church, and that's how you're faithful to it. And so we're part of that group. We've been appointed by Jesus to be his apostles, and now he's uh, preaching to us this commencement message. And uh, then he takes us on a journey with him. And I love the way Jesus teaches us because you notice that his teaching involves first information and then practical application because he actually takes us out to do this work with him. In the church, far too often, we are heavy on the information, but we provide little opportunity for the practical application of that. And as we're going along, we're kind of scratching our heads because if you read Luke chapter 6, it sounds an awful lot like the Sermon on the Mount. This is Luke's gospel. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. And you're kind of scratching your head, asking yourself, does Jesus really want us to take all everything he says literally? 
I mean, doesn't he seem to be given to hyperbole a great deal? We hope he is, because in order to do the stuff that Jesus asked us to do, we're going to need something greater, a greater power than ourselves to do these things. And so we're off with him, and we begin to enter Capernaum. Now, this is where you turn to Luke chapter 7. And you'll notice that as he enters into Capernaum, the most important religious people come out to meet Jesus, representing a very important military person, political person, a a Roman centurion. And we overhear what these Jewish leaders are saying to Jesus, that this man needs help, that his servant is sick and about to die. And, And so Jesus has asked us our opinion, but we're probably quick to give it, as to why Jesus should help or not help this person. Now, there were those who would say that, Jesus, we need to help this person because this Roman centurion is the kind of people that we're here to help. He's good people. And you read that in the story, don't you? He gives, he built the Jewish synagogue. Um, he's a man of great faith. Jesus will tell us he's humble. I mean, if, if you're going to serve somebody, aren't those the kind of people you want to serve? There are other people who might be politically minded, and they'll say, Jesus, we need someone like this Roman centurion. These are troubled times. A person in high places is very important. God may not be enough. Didn't you think that was funny? <laughs> and so let's, let's get politically connected. This guy could provide cover for us, and he would owe us if, if we were to uh, heal his servant. Now, if you are financially minded, and which apostle among the 12 would be financially interested in this, young, this uh, wealthy man? Judas. He would say, Jesus, don't let this one get away. After all, you can't feed the multitudes on five loaves and two fishes. (laughs) And besides, maybe he'll build us a synagogue and we can get out of the the weather. We could have our own place. We could use wealthy donors to this ministry. Now, Jesus is going to heal this man's servant, but he's not going to do it for any of those reasons. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Remember, this is the inaugural message on how we are to share the gospel with others around the world. And what does Luke chapter 6, 27 say? Love your enemies. Who were the enemies of the Jews at that time? The Romans. And you see, Jesus is saying that if you're going to be a preacher of my gospel, you've got to be able to love your enemies. Why is loving your enemies so fundamental to the message of the gospel? And why is it necessary for us as believers to love our enemies? Because the heart of the gospel is this, that God loved us while we were his enemies, sinners, his enemies. And how is the world going to believe there's a God that loves them when they're his enemies unless we as his followers don't love our enemies? You see, we are the tangible living proof of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God loves his enemies because those who follow him and experience his grace love those who uh, hate them. Love those who hate them. And so um, we see, interestingly enough, Jesus living out for his apostles in chapter 7 what he commanded to do them to do in chapter 6. Now, if you read a little further in Luke chapter 7, you come to these words soon after this. What's this next story about? It's about a widow at Nain who just lost her son, her only son. When Jesus sees her, what does he do? He weeps. Who, what mother is Jesus thinking about as he sees this woman leading the 
burial procession of her son. He's thinking about his own mother, Mary. And so what you see here is really a prophecy of what's going to happen after Jesus' own death, after Mary will escort her son to his burial place. Uh, now, what's interesting about these two people is this. In the first story, we've, we have a story of a Roman centurion. In the second story, we have a story of a Jewish widow. It's connected by that temporal phrase soon after this. It's connected logically by the word worthy. Much is made of the centurion's worthiness in the chapter we just read. He is worthy because look of all these things he's done for us. The centurion says, I am not worthy. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. There is the word, that same word worthy is used in the story of the widow, but you wouldn't know it unless you're reading the Greek because it's the word, it was a great crowd, a worthy crowd that accompanied her son's funeral. And so these people are connected temporally, they're connected thematically, but that's all they have in common because these two people are at opposite ends of a human spectrum. Everything that the Roman centurion is, the widow is not, and everything the woman is, he is not. Give me some differences. Wealthy, and she is poor. Widows in the Bible are known for their poverty. The widow put in her two mites. Uh, that's all she had. What else? Male, female. Gentile, Jew. Powerful, just say the word. I have people in me, say the word, and it shall be done. We know the story in Luke 19 of the widow who could not get her justice, what she was rightfully owed, because she had no power. Uh, so on a human scale, you will not find any two people who are further apart than this Roman centurion and this Jewish widow, different in every possible way. Now we go to the third story. The third story is about, and if you're taking notes, just put a, a dot on this side of the page and draw a line across it. Now I go to the top of the page and draw a line down the page because we go from a human plane to a spiritual plane because the next story in Luke chapter 7 is about who? John the Baptist. What does Jesus say about John the Baptist? Of all those born among men, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist. So on a human scale, on a spiritual scale, he's at the top of the list. Then you draw the line down the page to the bottom because we come to the lowest form of human spirituality. You have a prophet and a sinful woman. That's just a polite way of saying, excuse me, a prostitute, a prostitute. Um, you have John the Baptist at the top of humanity and the prostitute at the bottom of humanity. Now, there's one person in this story who's below her, but he doesn't think he is. The person who is below this sinful woman is a self-righteous Pharisee. Now, Ladies, I'm sorry to tell you, but throughout human history, women have always been at the bottom of humanity and always responsible for the evils in the world, Pandora's box and all those things. But in this story, it's not the woman who's at the bottom of the, <laughs> the, bottom of the page. It's the, the self-righteous man, because behind every sinful woman, there's a self-righteous man. And so this guy is really at the bottom of humanity. Now, what's interesting, if you turn back to Luke chapter 6, Verse 38, what does Jesus tell us to do? Do not, Luke chapter 6, 37, excuse me. Do not judge, do not judge, 
right? And you'll not be judged. Is that 37? Do not judge him. What does that mean? Does that mean we can't go to court and sit as a juror and make... No, it doesn't mean that. It means that we're not to decide in advance who is worthy of being offered grace. Now, isn't that an oxymoron, worthy grace? In order to receive grace, you have to be unworthy. That's, that's what it means. You're being treated in a way you're not worthy. And uh, so what's interesting is what we find in Luke chapter 7, the first story and the last story, is we find examples of loving our enemies and what it means to not judging others, but freely offering grace to those around us. So here we have this beautiful story in Luke chapter 7 of Jesus' four encounters with four people who are at opposite ends of every human category in which you can divide individuals up. I call these four people the, the four compass points of humanity. And this is what I find interesting. Jesus takes us to these four people. On the very first trip, he takes us out on what it means to be his apostles, what it means to take his message to the ends of the earth. Now, there is, first of all, a very important personal lesson for every one of us here to learn and to understand. And as you heard this verse, these verses being talked about, your heart should have been warmed. Because you know what these verses pointed out? They pointed out that no matter how wealthy you are or poor, no matter what ethnicity you come from, what gender you, you have, what power you have in life, whether you're good or you're evil, that the grace of God in Jesus Christ touched these people who are at the extremes of humanity. So if the grace of God can touch these people at the extreme of humanity, then it can touch who? You and me. It can touch each and every one of us. And perhaps you're here today believing that you are outside the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that your life for some reason is beyond hope, that he cannot reach down and, and, and transform your life. And I just want to say that this passage is screaming at you and say, don't believe that lie. Because no matter where you are or what you've done or who you are, the grace of God in Jesus Christ can so grab hold of your life and change it and make you into a new person. And many of you know that, don't you? Because you've experienced that for yourselves as, as you've walked with Jesus all these years. So that's the first good news of this message in Luke chapter 7. The second good news is this. I taught missions and evangelism. Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And uh, there has been a doctrine since the early 50s on how you go about planting churches. And that doctrine is called the homogeneous unit principle. That is, if you want to start a church, you just find a lot of people like you and a lot of people that you like and they like you, and, and you can plant a church that way. Because it's easy to get together people who are alike. In fact, if we wanted to grow this church, we'd go out in the parking lot and look at the cars that are in the parking lot, and then we'd say, let's target the people in our neighborhood who have the same kind of cars that we have because they're probably very similar to us, and they'll be attracted to us, and that's how you grow churches. You find people who are exactly alike, and that works. That really does work because you can, you can start social clubs and all kind of clubs using those kinds of things. And it's easy to grow churches like that because you want to grow churches with, with people who are more alike. You make the rest of the world evil and frightening and scared. And you say, we've got to stay together and we've got to 
But that's not how Christ grows his church. You see, Christ says, look, when you're preaching my gospel, you're to take this message to everyone, regardless of their economic status, their gender, their spiritual status. And as you preach that gospel and they come to Jesus Christ, then they're going to identify with the church. Just like our missions person. Who shared the missions minute? Uh, just like you said, you know, we're not called to be alone. We're called to be together as a church. And so as we preach the gospel and people from different backgrounds and different faiths and, and uh, different economic conditions and different stages in life, we come together and we form a new community. And the power of the gospel is not that we can attract people who are like together, but the power of the gospel is that it changes people who would normally hate one another, that they now love one another, and they share their lives and all that they have together. That is the power of the gospel. And the church in Acts, uh, in Antioch, Acts 13, it was a diverse church. They had Romans, they had Jews, they had Greeks, they had Africans. Simon Niger means he was a black man. Um, they had rich, they had poor, they're all in that church. And you know, where, and you know what they called the, those people in that church? Because there was no other name to call them. They couldn't call them wealthy because they were poor. They couldn't call them smart because they were stupid. They couldn't call them Jews because they were Greeks. You know what they ended up calling these people? It's the first place these, that we were given this name. What were they called? Christians. Why? Because that's all they had in common. And the power of the church, particularly in this divided world that we live in today, is that we can be a diverse community of language, of culture, of background, but worshiping God together, committed to the same faith, committed to Him and loving one another, and that will powerfully impact this world that we live in. Now here's the good news. Turn to Luke chapter 8. Remember in Luke chapter 6, Jesus chose who? Apostles, men to be apostles to go out and represent them. In Luke chapter 8, what does he choose? Or who is identified? Women to minister for him or minister to him. Now, I often think this is interesting because what's the better job? <laughs> ministering for Christ or ministering to Christ? <laughs> well, the women get to minister to Christ, the men have to go out and minister for Christ. But anyway, the point is, is that in Luke chapter 6, he appoints men. This is what they're doing. And Luke chapter 7, they describe what the women are doing. And then after Luke that, he, he gives a parable. What's the parable about? The parable of the sower. You see, Jesus taught us in principle in Luke chapter 6. He demonstrates it in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 8, he now tells us a parable. And he says, as you take the seed and you sow it everywhere, something's going to happen. People are going to respond. They're going to believe. And as you sow this seed, they're going, to, they're going to come to faith in Christ. Not everybody, but some. Not everybody, but some. And uh, so you see how these passages go together. So now we've just seen how or to whom we are to share the gospel. Jesus also teaches us how we are to share this gospel. You know what I love about Jesus? He loved to ir irritate the heaven out of the Pharisees. Everything he did was kind of like needling them. Like, come on, guys, don't you get this? Don't you get this? And in this chapter, he's doing things that are intentionally violating how the Pharisees say you are to live to, to love God. You know, the Pharisees were all about loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind. But there was only one thing they saw that got in the way of loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind. You know what it was? Other people. 
Now, let's be honest. Wouldn't you be a better lover of God if it wasn't for other people? But the problem is the two great commandments are what? Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus never let those two commands be separated. The Pharisees love separating them. You know, those two guys going down from Jerusalem to Jericho said, well, I can't help that guy fall among robbers for whatever reason. But uh, you can be sure that they, it was that they were lovers of God and couldn't help. Now, uh, but Jesus says you've got to put these things together. In fact, he says to love God is to love your neighbor. And loving your neighbor is loving God. There's no distinction between that. And so how does Jesus put these two things together for us? Well, in this story, what we're going to see that Jesus is stepping down into the sin, sickness, and suffering of this world. In the first story, Jesus is asked to go to a home of a Gentile. What's the problem? What? Unclean. And if you go into their house, if you go under their roof, you become unclean. Remember when they took the high priest and his cohort took Jesus to Pilate's palace? It says they stood out from under the perico so they could be clean and, and take the Passover. Isn't that ironic? They're in the process of committing a crime, but they, they think, well, well, we'll keep this part of the law. So uh, he's willing to go to the home of a Gentile, but if he goes under that roof, he will be unclean. You see, because Gentile homes are dirty. They smell like bacon. Don't other people's homes smell funny? When we were uh, first starting out of ministry, my wife and I, we had a youth group, and we'd go to this family's house to do the youth group, and they had dogs. And I was literally, I had to hold my breath because of the stench of those dogs all over the house. And I often thought to myself, don't they smell their stench? And you know the answer to that is? No, we don't smell our own stench. We smell everybody else's. Why? Because we're used to our stench. And so we think we don't have it. So anyway, Jesus is willing to go to the home of this Gentile. If he goes under his roof, he'll become unclean, but he's willing to do it. But the, the Roman centurion knows the rules, and he says, look, just say the word, my servant will be healed. So in that story, he's willing to go to the home of a Gentile, willing to be dirty, but he doesn't. In the next story, what does he do that makes him ceremonially unclean according to the law of Moses? He goes up to this man, dead man's, it's either the coffin or the, the shroud that he's wrapped in, and he does what? He touches it. Now, does Jesus have to touch the shroud in order to raise this man? He didn't have to touch Lazarus. Now, maybe it's because Lazarus stinketh, and he didn't want to get any closer than he did. But anyway, he touches the grave clothes of this dead young man. He's now unclean. In the third story, John the Baptist sends his, sends his disciples to Jesus, and the reason he does that, because he's in jail, you know, and he says, are you the one or shall we look for another? And Jesus begins to heal live sick people. Now, it doesn't say in this passage that Jesus touched any of these live sick people, but in the, in the couple chapters before when he's healing leopards, he touches them. It was normal for Jesus to touch sick people when he healed them. Any problem with that? 
What kind of social distance should Jesus have been keeping? <laughs> yeah, you know, six feet. Uh, you leper there, six feet, please. <laughs> you know, we got to keep our distance, you know. Uh, uh, live sick people, that's a, that's a whole step up from the things of the dead. You know, when we think of dead people, we don't think of it as a spiritual problem. In Jesus' time, it was a spiritual problem. Uh, we just think of them as, as, as being physically dead. In this, in this story, Jesus is touching now live sick people. And that is seen as a spiritual problem. And when you touch live sick people, the, the demon or the spirit of that sickness can get on you. And here's the, the real thing is that Jesus is laying his hands and touching and embracing and holding and, and healing these people. He's touching live sick people. So he steps down once again the sin, sickness, and sorrow of this world. In the last story, now Jesus is being touched by a sinful woman. Isn't the Pharisee right? If this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was, and he wouldn't allow her anywhere near him. Well, you don't have to be a prophet to recognize a prostitute. Jesus knew exactly who this woman was. But let me ask you this question. Is this prostitute... Do you imagine her as Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman when she comes down the elevator and walks through the hotel lobby? <laughs> or do you see her as the woman in Les Miserables after her dress has been torn and her hair cut off and her teeth ripped out all to try to save her daughter and she's dirty and she stinks and she smells because she is being used like a piece of trash by men to satisfy their own pleasure. Is that how you view her? Because that's what she looks like. She is ugly. Because not only her sin has made her ugly, the sins of others upon her has made her ugly. It has made her disgusting. You would want to vomit in her presence. That's how ugly she is. But that's not the worst part of this story. You see, she is doing something to Jesus. What's she doing to Jesus? She's, she speaks to him, but what, she's, what, is she, what else does she do? She, what? She's, she's touching our Lord's feet with her hands and her mouth. Now, what I'm going to say you might find very shocking and offensive because we don't want to read the Bible this way. We want the Bible to be at most a PG, family-friendly movie where nice people doing nice things are forgiving for not being that bad of people. But that's not the gospel. And if you believe that is the gospel, then you aren't forgiven. Because I know and you know that I'm not a nice person and you're not a nice person, that I'm not just a person who commits little sins and you're not a person who commits little sins, that we have committed the worst kinds of sins in the worst way and we're guilty of horrible things. And if you don't understand that's exactly what the Bible is talking about, then you won't know you're forgiven. But this woman is touching our Lord Jesus Christ with the tools of her trade, with her hands and her mouth. And let me ask you this question. Where have her hands and mouth been? Doesn't that change the way you read this story? Not a nice story about a nice woman doing nice things. It's about a wicked, sinful woman who has been abused and abusing. Now she's touching our Lord with her hands and her mouth. But before we condemn her, just let me say that your hands 
and mouth, nor my hands and mouth are any cleaner than hers. They're just a different kind of dirt. Uh, and this woman is touching our Lord. On the cross, Jesus will step down again into the sin, sickness, and suffering of this world because there he will bear all the sins of the world. It says that so horrible was his sight that the sky darkened and the earth shook. What is Jesus doing? He's teaching us how we are to share this gospel. We're to step down into the sin, sickness, and suffering of this world to share a gospel about a God who does that very same thing. And how can we share about a gospel a God who does these things if we don't do them ourselves. One of my favorite analogies or little word pictures in the psalm is Psalm 40. You know what? He lifted me up out of the miry clay, put my foot upon a rock, and put a new song in my voice. I love some of the newer translations. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit. If you had to get someone out of a slimy pit, how would you do it? I'd begin by shouting at him. Hey, you, get out of that slimy pit. Don't you know it's slimy down there? That doesn't work, does it? And you're saying, yeah, it doesn't work. They, won't, they don't listen to us. Well, maybe it's because you're not a safe person to talk to. Have you thought about that? And uh, if that didn't work, I, you know, I would uh, throw in a rope, say, grab the rope, I'll pull you out. But dead people don't grab ropes. So if I had to get them out, I'd kind of look around to the cleanest spot there was. I'd kind of take hold of them, shake them off, and put them up here and say, sing. That's how I'd do it. But you know how Christ saves sinners? It said that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He stepped down in that pit beside my lifeless body. He knelt down and took me in his arms. He put, he took his head, he took my head in his hands and he placed his holy lips over my filthy mouth and breathed in me the Holy Spirit. That's how God saves sinners. You want to know why the world doesn't listen to our, doesn't listen to us? Why the church has little to no impact? Excuse me, we have a great deal of impact. It's negative. Too much of this and not enough of this. So we're up here. He's lifted us out of Mary Pitt. We're singing with Jesus. You know, it's so good to be up here out of that wet mess. And we're singing along. And I look over at Jesus and he looks back at me. And I look at Jesus and he looks. You know where he looks? Back in the pit. Go ahead, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, John. I'm sending you. Now I have a problem. Because I don't like that pit. I don't like the slime. I don't like the dirt. I don't want to get back down in there. And I say, Lord, I, I can't. Who needs grace? I do. You do. And don't you ever preach the gospel of Jesus Christ unless you make it clear to the person you're speaking to that you need more grace than they do. Because in order for you to go back into what you, whatever you've gotten out of requires a great deal of grace. 
And so you see, this gospel of grace is not just for starting to get out of the pit. It's for the whole thing. We are more indebted to grace today than we ever have been in all our lives. Well, we've seen to whom we are to minister. We've seen how we are to minister, step down into the sin, sick, and suffering of this world. And now we're going to talk about the unexpected results. The unexpected results. Now, if I were God, I think I'd just put a sign up in the heavens that said, believe in me, I'm glorious. Oh, wait a minute, he's already done that. Psalm 19, isn't it? Or Psalm 8, heavens declare thy glory, the ferment, thy handiworks. Uh, but you know the one way that God chose? <laughs> because, you know, God must have a great sense of humor in all of his disgust and disappointment. Because he's chosen the one way to prove that he is a loving, all-powerful, good God that man says there's no way that there can be an all-loving and powerful God. You know, what, you know what the proof is, what atheists will tell you, the reason why there can never be an all-powerful and loving God? Suffering. Because of suffering, there is no all-powerful and loving God. How does God show that there's an all-powerful and loving God? By coming and Suffering identifying with suffering. And in each of these stories, when Jesus steps down in the sin, sickness, and suffering in this world, there is a greater revelation of his glory and his greatness. In the first story, Jesus is willing to go to the home of the Roman, of the Gentile, but he doesn't go what is believed about him. Well, he's better than the local shaman. He can heal at a distance. In the next story, Jesus touches the things of the dead. What is told about him, it says that the people spread the news everywhere. A great prophet has risen among us. Who is that great prophet who has risen among them? Who raised a widow's son from the dead near that very same place? Elijah. And so, you know, before the Christ, Elijah was to come. So you go from being a, a good shaman to Elijah the prophet to come before the Lord. In the next story, when, G, when John says, are you the one or shall I look for, we look for another Jesus performs all these miracles. Now, every one of those miracles comes from prophecy in the book of Isaiah. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the gospel is preached to the poor. In these three passages that these kind of things refer to, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 35, and Isaiah 42, each of those talk about the prisoner being set free, but notice Jesus never once mentions that a prisoner is going to be set free when he sends word to John. Why? Because this is a prophecy in silence. Letting John know, yes, I'm the one, but that's not going to change your situation. You're going to die in prison. So anyway, uh, Jesus now goes from uh, better than local shaman, a prophet like Elijah. Now he's the one, the Messiah. In the next story, when Jesus is being touched by the sinful woman, the people, uh, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And by the way, her sins aren't forgiving her because she loveth much. She loveth much because Why? Her sins are forgiven. Is your heart cold towards God? Then you need to take a deeper look at the condition of your heart and see how much he's forgiven you. Uh, but anyway, the, the people around the table say, who is this one who even forgives sin? They won't even say he claims to be God. Then when Jesus is on the cross, there's a centurion at the foot of the cross. He's looking up, and he sees Jesus dying. And what does he say? Surely this is the Son of God. Now, don't you find it interesting that when Jesus healed the sick, they didn't say, this is the Son of God? When he fed the multitudes, they didn't say, this is the Son of God? When he, you know, 
did other miracles. They didn't say the Son of God. But when he was dying, this man saw in him a revelation of divine nature. Truly, this is the Son of God. I wish I could tell you that, you know, the Christian life was easy, but that song we sung, often in sorrow, often in woe. Why? Because we live in a broken world with broken people. And we can lock it out and we can pretend everything's okay and just go about our happy lives here thinking it nice to be with Jesus. But we're not going to have any impact on a broken world. Somehow we've got to put ourselves into that brokenness and demonstrate the love of Christ. And you might say, that's never going to change anything. Well, it may not change them, but I know one person will change. You know who that will be? You. And me. And really, that's what the problem is. It's not them that need to be changed. It's, it's us. We, li- we were missionaries in the south of France. Isn't that a hardship? <laughs> Tough life living in the south of France. We were working with Muslims, but they were wonderful people. If you have to go to France... As a missionary and work with people, don't work with the French. Work with the North Africans. North Africans are lovely people. (laughs) Uh, The French are great too, but they're not as good as the North Africans. (laughs) And um, I want to tell you about another missionary. He went to Hawaii. Hardship course, a hardship place there. But this missionary went to a leper colony. You see, when leprosy broke out in the Hawaiian Islands, they didn't know what to do. It was worse than AIDS, worse than covid you were isolated. You were sent to a sandbar off the, that was a sandbar that was formed on one of the sides of the island of Molokai. Anybody seen that? It's just a sandbar, right? There's, and there's no getting away from it. You can't swim away because the sharks will eat you. You can't climb this volcanic rock up it because it's just impossible. And so they just dumped the people there and, and they left them to die. In fact, the sailors would just throw all their belongings in the ocean and them too and they'd have to swim to shore. The doctors who would come to visit them would make them sit across the room and they'd put their medicine on the table and say, when I leave, you can come get it. Well, this missionary, Joseph Damien, a Belge, uh, he went to the island of Molokai. And I think he went because his brother couldn't go, so he just took his place. And he bandaged and cared for and washed the wounds of these people. He built, planted gardens with them and built schools and started church and so he's uh, loving and caring for these people. And, uh, and after a number of years, he's fixing himself some tea in his kitchen. And he, he spills some hot water on his feet. But he has no feeling. So he pours some of the hot water out of the kettle. And there's still no feeling. And he's worked with lepers long enough to know the diagnosis. And so when he goes before his congregation that morning, he addresses them in this way. We lepers. We lepers. Now, don't you think that those lepers saw in the life of this man exactly what Jesus has done for us when he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His words and his life was congruent and so do ours need to be. Anybody ever been to the statutory hall in uh, Washington, D.C.? 
You weren't there on January 6th, were you? <laughs> in Statuary Hall, each state can send two statues of those people who best exemplify the values of their state. Hawaii has already sent their two people. The first was of the Hawaiian king. Now, the Hawaiian king is considered to be divine because he came up through the turtle, through the fish, through the seagull, through the eagle to be divine. The second statue is of Joseph Damien because he demonstrated divinity in stepping down into the sin, sickness, and suffering of this world. There's only one place where this message is more clear And that is at the table of our Lord. As you receive the sacrament, you think of to whom Christ has sent you, how he has sent you, and the unexpected results.